all, this is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests, and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Yolitics. Do we call it an edition it's or an, an episode? episode? man. How long have you been doing this? It's an Come episode. An, ed- an edition is a, a magazine or newspaper. Well, you know, we put this in writing too. See, here's the, here's the issue. Wheeler has started out with something strong here, and Ozarka Water. He's, a, he's coming out of the A gate, little one. Coming out of the gate heavy with this. Pacing myself. What are you having today, by the way? I'm having a, uh, a necessary evil. Now... And this isn't preceded by any water. You wanted to make sure that it was not it, diluted in any it way. It needs to go down smooth. So this uh, this is a little banged up. Our, our, our listener can't see this, fortunately, but um, our guest you know, easily passed this one. Which if I you're was watching us on video, though, which people yeah. now do on podcasts, Jason. It, it looks like it was on the discount rack. It does. Um, I think I dropped what, it out of my car twice, and I can't believe it didn't explode. And then you offered this. I, don't put that near me. Uh, you offered this to everyone in the room, including our guest. And I, I think the reason you dropped it is because you wanted that one. That, that is a good strategy. I should do that. And it did not explode. So I, happy ending. What there. are you having, man? I am having a Bowie Bach today. This is from uh, Freetail Brewing. I think it's Freetail Brewing. Yeah, Freetail Brewing in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and I, I like the, the mantra on it. It says, I didn't deserve mercy. I don't deserve mercy, but I do deserve a drink. And uh, part of the proceeds from this go to the Remember the Alamo Foundation. You know Interesting, that? man. Wow. I'm having a, a necessary evil. This is a Pilsner from Manhattan Project Beer Company, just on the west side of downtown Dallas, right across the bridge. And it's kind of hidden behind the post office. Cool little place if you haven't been. But don't go because it's one of my favorite places. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want it overwhelmed with people. I don't want it overrun. It's, I, exactly. When you say it, you need to separate your words a little bit better. It sounds Which like you one? say, I'm having an unnecessary evil. A necessary a evil. A necessary And evil. it's by the Manhattan Project Beer Company, of course, you know, the whole theme after uh, the atomic bomb. Let's talk about where we are. This is a cool place. I, I've been here to cover things here. Um, and, and for those of you watching this, I mean, this, this is, these chairs, they go all the way back. These are the comfy this, chairs. These are good nice. chairs. Uh, have you ever been inside the actual guts of this building, the, the offices? I've been in the museum and I've been in the theater. Okay. Uh, we are at the, the Pres- George, Bush, George W. Bush Presidential Library in Dallas, Texas. Presidential Center, right? Is they it call it the Presidential Center. Because it encompasses the library and museum and It's the a lot Institute. like episodes and, you know. Um, it is. Yeah. Uh, so have you been here before? I, I've been here before. I've covered things here before. They have never let me past, you know, where the public is. I've never been in these offices back here. They're nice offices. Those crimes finally just faded out of your, you know, after <laughs> yeah. seven years, they, they, they fold out, right? Go ahead and let him in. Green light him. Uh, and today we are talking about Title 42, uh, and we have a wonderful expert with us to talk about this. You know, I think a lot of people here title 42 you've probably heard it you know maybe a lot of our listeners who are you know super plugged into politics have been you know keeping up on the ins and outs of this but i think a lot of people hear title 42 and they just kind of gloss over and think "Eh, it has something to do with immigration and then you know don't really look further into it from there well title 42 has ended now and uh it's changing everything along the border and we'll see if it changes it even more going forward it's been an interesting start to the ending though that's good, Wheeler. That's, that's impressive. That's a little teaser. That, that is good. Uh, so our guest today is Laura Collins. She's the director of the Bush Institute uh, and the SMU Economic Growth Initiative. And you know what I like about this is because every time we go out in the field, um, I always ask... Embracing. In, in, I know what's field. coming. Yeah, I always ask, um, you know, our, our folks if they'd like to have a beer with us. We get to have a beer. And, and Laura and Kenzie said, absolutely. Laura would like to have one. So I'm like, this will be a good podcast. Yeah, uh, it, it was a it was an emphatic yes, and it came quickly. I felt like I was I was surprised. <laughs> I'm shocked. Laura, welcome to you uh, to the podcast here. Thank you for having me. Um, I have to say, um, the name of this podcast, Yolitics, I will say is probably my second favorite podcast name. Second, we have one well, here. They have oh. one here. Well, it's a good one here. It yeah, is a good it's one. Really good. We call it the Strategist, and we we think that that's probably a better name. But Yolitics is a really really good name for this podcast. And clarify you. because you told us this story before we started recording. Uh, or I, I heard it here. I think you told us. Strategery is is the the thing that Will Ferrell said. The line that Will Ferrell said making fun of President George W. Bush years ago. But President Bush didn't really say that line. He never actually said that. Um, But we think it's funny. And so uh, we use it for our podcast. 
That's stunning to me. I learned something before we ever even started today. I we thought aim he to said that. Here. <laughs> you educated me. I thought he actually said that, but Will Ferrell made it famous, and you all have embraced it. And I've and I always liked that about uh, President George W. Bush is that you know he had these remarks that sometimes missed the mark a little bit, and he embraced it. Both he and Mrs. Bush have wonderful sense of humor. Um, they are funny people. And so I think that's, you know, one of those things that sort of trickles down into the rest of us here and that we, you know, we do very serious work and we talk, tackle a lot of very serious yeah. topics, but it doesn't all have to be um, dire. It mm -hmm. can, we can do it with some humor. Before we dive into immigration, by the way, do you see the former president around here pretty often? Well, you know, he doesn't office here um, typically, but we do see him from time to time. Um, obviously, um, you know, he's got his own post-presidential life. Um, he paints and they've got, yeah. you know, they still go down to Crawford some. So we see them occasionally, but um, by and large, we're here uh, with our heads down doing the work that we do. There's a chance though, that he could pop in today, even. We, you know, we, we have an extra beer for him if he does come <laughs> in here. What, what, but actually, I'm, I'm curious, the, the strategist, tell our listeners who are podcast fans, obviously, what all you cover on the, on the strategist? You know, the strategist is really about talking to people who are thinking about the hard problems facing the world, um, some of them domestic, some of them foreign, and and taking a look at leadership and, and what they bring to the table on these issues. And, um, you know, our wonderful host, um, who's our colleague here, Andrew Kaufman, always asks on the podcast, you know, what are you thinking about that no one else is thinking about? You yeah. know, what should we be paying attention to? Hmm. Um, and that's just what we work on here. Do you have beer on that podcast? We do not have beer on that uh, podcast, so but I can I can put that suggestion in. <laughs> don't 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 steal our little thing here. I won't steal your I won't steal your thing. What are you having today, by the way? Um, this is called Mira. It's a Mexican style lager from Whitestone Brewery in Cedar Park, Texas. Love Cedar that. Park, nice. Just outside right. of Austin. Uh, so uh, we've come here today to talk about Title Forty Two and uh, Im immigration at large. I mean, I, I think is, right. is, let's zoom out a tad. Well, we're going to do both. Can Lead we, us into it then. Well, I wanted to start with Title 42 just because this is what's in the news right now. I think this is what people are hearing the most right now with regards to immigration uh, because Title 42 just ended on May 11th. This was the Trump era policy that allowed the United States to essentially immediately remove asylum seekers from the country. Uh, you know, because of COVID-19 uh, protocols, you know, basically saying we're going to, you know, stop the spread of the virus, at least in part by making sure that these people aren't coming into the country. The Biden administration then came on board and it continued. Uh, and then we had a federal judge who said, hey, this needs to end. This isn't really a great uh, way to, uh, you know, enforce something like this. Uh, you need to bring this to an end. And so they did. Um, Lord, my, my fascination is, is this ended on May 11th. Everyone predicted, I'm sure you did too, that we were going to see a potential explosion of people, you know, coming into the borders of the U.S. But instead, in the very beginnings of the end here, as I was talking about earlier, we have seen a huge drop off. What's going on there? Well, I'm not really sure what's going on, but there could be a couple of different things. Um, but first, you know, let's let's make sure we have sort of a general understanding of what Title 42 is and what it did and what normal immigration processing is, what something I'll probably refer to as Title 8, because that is how we would normally. Um, that's the section of U.S. law where immigration is. So before the pandemic, Everyone who crossed the border was processed under something called Title VIII, which meant that if you were caught illegally crossing the border, uh, there was a penalty involved, and that was a five-year bar to re-entry. If you presented at a port of entry and you were not admissible, uh, you didn't have a visa, uh, you could request asylum, whether that was at that port of entry or whether it was between ports of entry. Um, and then we would have a credible fear interview. There's a process in place for us to determine if you have the right to be here and that we probably can offer you protection. It's called a credible fear interview? Credible fear interview. I've never heard of that. A yeah, lot of these people so, are escaping danger in other places. So the way asylum works is basically the definition for an asylee and a refugee is the same. It's someone fleeing persecution. Sure. There's a couple of different things, you know, government, religion, things like that. Um, but an asylum seeker shows up at our border or is already here and says, I can't leave, I'll be in danger. And that is the asylum process. A refugee applies from abroad. They go through a slightly different vetting process. And then they are eventually chosen for resettlement, whether it's here or somewhere mm -hmm. else. Um, but the law is the same. The basis, the legal basis for what you qualify for protection is the same. 
And so it doesn't matter how you get to the United States. If you get here between a port of entry, at a port of entry, you can apply for asylum. And if you don't qualify, then you are asked to leave the country. We may put you through removal proceedings and we may deport you. And that is what existed before Title 42, before COVID-19. Title 42 existed for decades, but it wasn't used very often. Mm. Not a lot of communicable diseases that we felt like we needed to stop sure. in the modern and um, the last couple of decades. But it was in place at the border for three years now. It started with the Trump administration. And what it did was it took away those legal penalties. Suddenly, if you tried to cross the border between a port of entry and you didn't have a valid asylum claim, we didn't bar you from coming back for five years. That legal penalty didn't exist because we never put you through removal proceedings. Hmm. We just expelled you and sent you back to Mexico and said, sorry. But there was no penalty for trying again. So people kept trying to repeat. They would cross over and over and over because they thought if they just kept trying, they could either get in or someone would finally start processing their asylum claim. Is that why you think we have seen the number The number of people uh, at the border uh, ha has just been enormous? Is that part of the, of the reason That why? is part of the reason, really? yes. Okay. yes. So Title 42 in one way was really, really bad on the humanitarian side because we weren't giving people an opportunity to request protection. Mm -hmm. On the other side, on the enforcement side, it was also really bad because it didn't have any teeth. There was no legal recourse for these people crossing. So when we go back and we remove Title 42 from the equation, now we actually have have enforcement mechanisms with teeth because people have an actual penalty for crossing now. Mm -hmm. In addition, we've opened ports of entry more or less to people who want to seek protection, who need protection, who now they have the ability to ask for that. So we've gotten back to normal. Hmm. Um, the border numbers are still probably going to be a little high this summer. Uh, we have a lot of people displaced across the Western Hemisphere. Some of them are fleeing bad government. Some of them are fleeing bad economics. Others just know that the economy here still has a lot of open jobs and are just looking for an opportunity to make their family life better. But this is not just a problem in the United States. We've seen record numbers of people displaced globally. So migration is an issue that happens all around the world. Sure. It's not just our problem. I think when we hear about you know migration, I think of far off places this happens. I mean, a few years ago, it was Syrian refugees entering Germany and, and, and parts of Europe. Um, but, but you guys have, have studied here and have said, along with many others, that there's a refugee crisis right now in the Western Hemisphere. I, I don't remember those that, that phrase before in the past 20 years or so. H have we experienced that? And is the driver of that the good economy in the, in the U.S.? So we've started calling it a refugee crisis because the number of people who are on the move and it's not just folks leaving places that you think of that are dysfunctional like venezuela or haiti it's people leaving other countries as well and they're trying to find their way to safety and security and just a calm living environment uh, some of them need jobs we know women um, and children in particular in central america a lot of times it's not that they're being actively persecuted by their government although that's not true everywhere um, but their government doesn't really have the ability to properly protect them from the violence that they see on a daily basis. So there's a lot of different factors at play in pushing people to move. Um, we call it a refugee crisis because um, even if you're not crossing borders, um, you know, we, a lot of women in Mexico are what we call internally displaced. They've left the interior of the country. They're going to border communities. They're going to safer cities because cartel violence has threaten their sons or their husbands, and so they're on the move as well. So we know there's a lot of people who are on the move, who are seeking safety, who don't have a place to go, um, and a lot of countries who don't have a legal way for them to resettle somewhere else, whether that is a legal employment visa, whether that is family reunification, or whether that's through a refugee or asylum process. Generally speaking over time, have we seen the, the face of an immigrant showing up at the southern border? Have we seen that person, the, the characteristics, the demographics change over the last 15, 20 years? Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, we used to probably think about migration as single adult men from Mexico, prime sure, working right, age. Right. Um, looking for jobs. Looking for jobs. Um, people trying to evade uh, Border Patrol because they knew if they could get in, they could probably find work somewhere. Um, starting in about 2013, that really dramatically changed. Uh, we saw a lot of unaccompanied children, if you remember, during the Obama administration, sure. mm -hmm. mostly from Central America. 
And then since then, we've seen a lot of families. Um, we saw a lot of families during the Trump administration. And now you're just seeing people from all over the world. That's not a new phenomenon. There were always people from around the world. If you could fly into into South America or into Mexico and, and make your way to the border, you can present here and, and ask for asylum. So we've seen people from everywhere for years. It's just the numbers are a little higher and those fluctuate depending on global events. We've seen a lot of Chinese, for example, lately because they've finally been able to travel and get out post COVID. And so now they're taking their chances trying to find freedom. I've always been curious about that. They're called OTMs other than Mexicans is what they're called uh, by the Customs and Border Patrol. We were talking to the Cameron County judge, Eddie Trevino Jr., uh, who is in charge of Brownsville. And he was saying that we are now seeing, we, we've always seen a lot of OTMs, uh, Chinese and others, but we're seeing everybody at our doorstep now, Ukrainians, uh, people from different places in Europe. I've never understood covering this for 23 or 24 years now in Texas. If you have money to buy a plane ticket to Mexico or Central America, why don't you just buy one to New York or Miami or Dallas or anywhere else? Or, because or we won't grant you a visa. So you need the okay. you would need a visa to get here from to, most of those countries, from, and we won't grant you a visa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you just can't present and ask for asylum. No, because if you're going to get on that plane, you have to. I mean, you could, I guess, in theory, try to get on the plane. Like mm. at some point, someone's going to stop you and say, "You don't have a visa. You you're not a valid traveler." Yeah, the, the mm-hmm. air, air, airline won't let you on because mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense because they don't want to fly you back if you can't get in. I'm curious, too, there are specialized kinds of visas, and we in this country, especially over the last year, have seen this situation where we have the number of open jobs just, I mean, it yawned to like, you know, 11 million and more, and businesses out there are desperate. In some cases, I mean, and we're not talking about necessarily somebody to pick crops in a field, which I think a lot of people tend to associate immigration with. We're talking high-tech jobs in some cases, skilled workers. You know, businesses have been looking for people people have been looking for jobs who are outside of this country and they haven't been able to fill the jobs with people inside this country. This really spills into business when we start talking about immigration and and that affects all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, I think, probably more acute in Texas. I think uh, about 17% of the population here in Texas is foreign born. Uh, they fill 20% of the jobs. So they're really punching above their weight. We know it's a huge, very important part of our workforce. And if you're looking at just like hotel and food service and sort of general tourist type industries, you're looking at full one in four are filled by the foreign born in the state of Texas. Let me ask you about that because, you know, we talk about 17% of people in Texas being foreign born, but yet holding 20% of the jobs for the people out there who say, well, see, that's why we, we need to control immigration because they're taking quote unquote, our jobs. Yeah. I think labor market economics are hard to wrap your brain around. Um, it's not one-to-one. It feels very much like a fixed pie and that if there's an open job and someone takes it, that means someone else loses. And we forget about that demand side. What do you create um, when you come in as a worker? You need to pay for goods and services as well. And that opens up other job opportunities. And we also know that immigrants are entrepreneurial. So we know a lot of the immigrants are coming in and actually starting businesses. A lot of them employ Americans. A lot of them employ other foreign-born people. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that there's a one-to-one. Um, I and understand- there are jobs that a lot of Americans won't take. Well, you know, we find that there are um, labor force gaps across industries. And sometimes it's not that, you know, Americans don't want them. Sometimes Americans don't want to move to them, right? So the opening may be in a place where there's just not enough people, right? Um, We think about that a lot when we think about rural places. Um, I know a lot of them lack medical facilities. They lack doctors and not a lot of nurses. Um, We've probably all read the same articles about the lack of uh, maternal health care in rural Texas and what that's doing. And a lot of that is not having skilled workers, doctors and and such in those places. And foreign born people can fill those jobs. Mm -hmm. You took part in a uh, white paper that's called Smart Border Policy for the 21st Century. It's on immigration. And this was done, I think, in February 21. It's fascinating to read because it really, you know, really digs beyond the headlines. I don't want to talk about a few things on it. Um, but but one line you have pretty early on in here says, border border policy in the United States has uh, for too long been characterized by a very, very narrow definition. This beer is already talking to me here. Jeez. I can't even read this My line. Goodness. You should have had, I can't even read this line. You here. should have had one of those baby waters beforehand, Let, like cut, I did. Let's cut that out sort of. All right, here we go. Border policy in the United States has for too long been characterized by a very narrow definition of security. 
uh, deterrence and physical barriers. A recent white paper by the Institute says that ignores many opportunities to better secure our perimeter. What are some of those opportunities? Yeah, when we think about border policy, we like to think about it broadly. It's not just about physical barriers, not just about migration. Um, You know, our border communities are such vibrant places and they're centers of trade and commerce and tourism and and life. And so when we think about border policy, you want to think about what are all the tools you have in your in your toolkit? How do you make sure that you have barriers in the appropriate places so that that helps our law enforcement at the border? How do you make sure that you are having good security at ports of entry. We know, you know, drug smuggling's on everyone's mind, the fentanyl crisis. Those drugs are primarily smuggled through ports of entry in passenger vehicles often, sometimes um, under crates of vegetables and commercial vehicles. And a lot of times they're smuggled by U.S. citizens. Mm-hmm. And only if you have really good screening processes at the border and good technology are you going to catch all of those things. So that's an important piece of this. It's also, you know, making sure we're working with other countries um, when we think about this refugee crisis or a migration crisis. You know, where can we resettle other people? How are we um, working with Mexico? How are we working with Colombia? How are we working with Panama? We know so many people travel through the Darien Gap in Panama. And then also just thinking about what are our legal tools we can use, not just on the enforcement side, but can we fix that legal immigration system? Because we know that if people have a legal means to come here, they will use that instead of trying to come unauthorized. Um, One of the reasons you see asylum as one of the places where we have so many people is because it's their only legal means of getting to the United States. You talk about the system. So I I want to invoke the man whose name is on this center that we're in right (laughs) now. Not this library, Whiteley, this center that we're in right now, uh, uh, President George W. Bush. Uh, He says, at its core, immigration is a sign of a confident and successful nation. Immigrants' talent and hard work and love of freedom have helped us become the leader of the world. I was interested. I, I, I looked back at his uh, 2007 State of the Union speech uh, in which it says, uh, you know, he called on uh, Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> uh, he called on Congress to, to do that, to secure the borders, to enhance the interior and work site enforcement, create a temporary worker program, uh, uh, on and on. And, and you just think, we're still talking about this stuff today. This was from 2007. Uh, yeah. and, and of course, this issue predates that by sure. many years as well. Why can't this get done ever? You know, if you look back at the history of immigration reform in this country, this happened also in the 1920s when they in- instituted the quotas and really shut down immigration from Eastern Europe. Um, it took them 40 years to reopen that with the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965. There's a really, really good book hmm. called One Mighty and Irresistible Tide that talks about the journey of that politically and how, what it took to get to the 1965 INA. So we know that these are things where you have to play the long game. And you look, um, you know, fast forward a little bit to the 80s. Um, if you, the last time we really did a comprehensive immigration reform, you could take the three bills that were passed from the mid 80s to the early 90s and combine them and say that was comprehensive reform as well because there was a piece about the undocumented in the Reagan administration, there was a piece about the border in the Clinton administration, and there was a piece about employment in the George H.W. Bush administration. These things take a long time. Um, Congress doesn't like to do the part that's probably the hardest. Everyone thinks it's the border. Everyone thinks it's about the undocumented. The hardest part is the future flows. Who are we bringing in? Where are they coming from? And how many of them are we going to do it? Hmm. And so that's a hard one to get to. And that's what you see in all those fights across history. Um, We have currently, um, as part of the law, per country caps. So one of the big problems in our legal immigration system right now is that only 7% of green cards per year can come from any one country, which is fine if you're from a low sending country because Mm -hmm. your application is probably going to get processed. But if you're from Mexico and you have a family member here who wants to sponsor you, you're probably in a 20 year line. Who wants to wait 20 years? And so that is going to encourage illegal immigration because you, this person feels like they have no other choice. Well, and even if you choose to wait that long, because, you know, if you're from Mexico, you can probably get a tourist visa to come back and forth and visit. You're not going to get to live here. Um, but you, like, let's assume you want to wait that long. That's, what if you don't have a sponsor? Mm. What if your only option is your skills? And by the way, that green card system, only about 10,000 green cards per year are reserved for people with less than a bachelor's degree. 
Hmm. And only about 7% of the total number of green cards we give out per year are reserved for people who have a job in the United States. Everything else is family-based. And that's okay. That's not to say that family-based is necessarily bad, but it's also not really meeting the needs we have. And it's just not efficient. It's so backlogged. And the high-sending countries don't have really an opportunity for people to get here. So that's very detailed then. Yeah. And, and that, Sorry. <laughs> that, no, no. I, I think that's important because I think a lot of people go, well, you know, why can't this just be fixed? Why can't they just say we're going to do this? Why didn't you just this? apply? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And, do it the legal way. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so there's a lot more to it there. Uh, and, and, and it kind of starts to explain why it has been so long since this has been addressed the last time. You've been in this uh, in immigration policy, really focusing in on it for about a decade yep. now. To which when I walked in the room and, you know, we were talking about that, I thought, wow, that's a long time. And you're like, no, 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 I'm a baby yeah, in this space. Yeah, I'm a space. baby in this space. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have really been working on this for multiple, multiple decades trying to get something done. Yeah. Can you add also, explain a little bit more about future flows. What, yeah. what is the politics behind that? Why is that the hard part? To, to, you know, to predict and, and approve who is going to come to this country over the coming decades? You know, Why is my, that so hard? My theory is it's a little bit that people don't really want to pick winners and losers. And whenever you start to, like, slice and dice, you know, where people are coming from and whether you're doing temporary workers or permanent immigrants, you're really picking winners and losers. And you end up picking winners and losers of people from countries and people who have a stake in the argument here because they're trying to bring a relative over. Um, businesses have a stake in this. Um, but I think one of the things that's really funny about this is, um, I don't know if you guys recall this, but there was a vote during the Trump administration, probably 2018, 2019, Senate was going to vote on four amendments that they were going to append to something else. And they were going to take on the dreamer issue and border and the four amendments. One of them was, I think, pure border security. One was, um, probably pure dreamers. And then the other two or three were a couple mix of, you know, a, a solution for dreamers, for those who are listening to this who don't know who dreamers are, we can talk in detail right. about that in a minute, but people who were brought to the U.S. and documented as children. So it was going to be a solution for dreamers and then a mix of border. And all four amendments failed. The amendment that got the most votes was the one that was the purest compromise, dreamer and border, clean, easy. The amendment that got the fewest votes was the one that was going to dramatically cut the number of green cards available per year for family reunification. They were going to cut out people's ability to sponsor their parents to come to the United States. Wow. And so there's not a big appetite for big cuts in immigration. There's not a big appetite for big increases. So what we do every time there's this debate comes around is everyone's trying to subdivide the same number of green cards available and try to figure out what the right mix is instead of just bumping up the global number of green cards. Why, why, why don't they do that? that? That seems easy. There's just not a lot of political um, will behind that right now. Um, I think that there's always a concern, especially if you look at this historically, about well, it's going to change the demographics of the United States so much and what's it going to do to our ideals. And I think that's it's an unfortunate conversation because we've shown time and time again that the United States is very good at integrating and assimilating immigrants. And yeah. so people come here not because they want to change the United States, but because they want to be Americans. They desperately want the freedom and opportunity the rest of us have. You can see that assimilation all over the place in Texas. Yeah, I mean it's 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 amazing. Uh, I want to ask you about the politics of it since you're you know kind of getting into that here. Uh, we talked about this you know before we started here, and you know you would think, well, can't this get done when we're not in a quote unquote election year? But you know, then you made the point that even if we're not in an election in an election year, we're in the year preceding that year, which is when everybody is you know starting to run anyway. I think on a lot of issues, not just immigration, that cycle every two years for House members really impedes some progress on some, on some issues. It makes it difficult because, especially for those House members, their districts are smaller. Um, they really just have to worry about their own district. And if you got elected as a House member because you really cared about tax policy or you really cared about guns or you really cared about health care, just name your, name your issue, and your constituents really care about that, you're not going to spend a lot of your political capital trying to push through an immigration bill that's going to be a tough vote. And so that's hard. Um, it's not impossible. And one of the things that I really like to talk about, and one, one of the reasons we work on this is because we don't think it should be a political issue. We do think that we should be able to have grown-up conversations that focus on the facts of the issue, that focus on the solutions, and that aren't political. Because this is an issue that's really important to the future prosperity and security and vitality of the United States. And if we're not thinking about it in terms of what the U.S. future looks like, 
and how we're going to meet those goals and targets, then we're just playing politics with something that's too important to do that with. A Texas congressman named Tony Gonzalez represents a wide swath of the border. Um, he is a Republican. He's he's a, a middle-of-the-road Republican, I think he would probably describe himself as. At least on immigration. On, on immigration. He helped the House Homeland Security Committee finally craft their border bill Talked to him a few weeks ago. He said, my, my next priority is working on legal immigration. It's been kicked down the road for too long. My question to him, do you think you can get any support for this? And and he said, you know, sure, it, it, it's an uphill climb. I, I, I think it is an uphill climb. Do, do you see anybody able to break through? You know, he's not the only House Republican who's... Um on immigration who's thinking about these things you know we've seen uh, last um last year in late fall maria alvaro salazar put out a bill um that was a little bit of a dream act compromise and and some other legal immigration um interest and 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 compromises. So we know there's some people thinking about it. Um, we also had some bipartisan legislation, Farm Work First Modernization Act, that would have tackled agricultural workforce issues. So we know that there's other people thinking about this. Um, I will say I find um, it a little frustrating that Congress seems to be just a, about a step behind everybody else on this. Um, it's not really their fault. There's, there's a lot going on. Um, you know, we all saw this workforce shortage and inflation on the horizon a while ago. And we're all saying, you know, this isn't the only tool, but immigration is one tool. We can use immigrants to help fill jobs in temporary capacity. And then there's these other things we can do to help build up the labor, the labor force. Um, they're just now in this session talking about what they can do for that when it would have been helpful last session. Um, and so we do see that, you know, sometimes getting them to focus on it is, I think, a little bit of a challenge because they've got other things right in front of them. And obviously, there's lots of big things going on in the world right now. It's not just it's not just this issue. This is the one that's most important to me. This is sure. the one I work on. And, and le leadership, though, hasn't shown any any real desire to make this a priority and to bring it to the front burner. You know, we haven't seen a lot of priority out of either the administration or out of Congress right. on this. And I think it's just not, it, there's other things that people want to do, right? Yeah. And and that's a reality. We, we've heard so much negative about immigration here in Texas specifically. Uh, is Texas also, though, a model that can be looked at for some positives with immigration? Because as you mentioned, you know, uh, foreign-born people hold 20% of the jobs in this state. This state is the, the envy of this country as far as the, the economic output. It's an engine, and there are jobs available. Uh, you know, the, the state GDP is just soaring. Uh, it, it sounds like there's a, a big success story here as well. There's a massive success story here. And, you know, I at least in my opinion, um, and I will say I'm a Texas transplant. I didn't grow up here. Um, one of the things I find so interesting about living here is that the political conversation on immigration doesn't really match our day-to-day -day reality of how we live and interact with foreign-born people every single day. And by and large, everybody here mostly gets along and I think recognizes that there is a lot of upside to having these people here. Um, and, you know, migration from outside of the borders of the United States is not that much different than migration from outside of the borders of Texas, right? And we have people moving to the state every day. Um, some of them were born outside of the U.S. and some of them were born in California. Um, but they're all moving here and wanting to contribute and making up what Texas looks like today. And so when I think about that success story, it's not just, you know, so much of what has made Texas successful economically are things that also help immigrants. But we can do more. And there are things that state and local governments can do that really push and help to further economically integrate those folks, make sure that they have the ability to work in jobs that meet their knowledge, skills, and abilities. If they have a foreign licensure, how do we figure out a way to help them meet licensure requirements in the state of Texas? Wait, so if you could talk to Governor Abbott personally, and we know he listens to this podcast. If you could talk to him personally, though, he's got this Operation Lone Star going on at the border, which is sort of a state border control force, I guess he would call it, uh, where he's spending billions and billions of dollars a year on this. Uh, what would you advocate for that he spend that money and that effort on instead of that? Or would you advocate for something different? Well, you know, I think that the, the efforts down there are interesting because I do think border communities are, are facing a little bit different perspective on this than the rest of us because they do have a lot and the NGOs down there, the the nonprofits and, and the groups that work with migrants have worked with migrants for decades have always do such a really great job of making sure that the humanitarian needs of the people who are released from Border Patrol custody are met. And border communities have really borne the brunt of 
a broken immigration system, right? It's right. not just a broken border issue. It's a broken immigration system. So there's a little bit of that is just trying to respond to the needs of border communities. What I would say, though, is how do we take the people who we know are here and make sure that they are set up for success? Are we making sure that we have foreign licensure recognition? Are we making sure that every child in the state that we educate has the ability to succeed. We know that there are gaps in certain communities here, um, but we also know these folks are going to be in our workforce eventually. If we want them to stay in Texas and really contribute to our state, we need to make sure every single child here succeeds. And that's not just the ones who were born here. And so some of these are not, um, and we could also lower barriers to entry for businesses. We talked about them being entrepreneurs before. Some of these are things that would help every single Texan, not just those who are foreign born, but for the foreign born there's a few things that we could do that are specifically in mind for them you, you say foreign licensure uh, approval that, that's if someone comes in and he's a medical doctor or she's yeah. a medical doctor in venezuela they'd they have to go here. through medical school again here they'd have to states. start all over here start all over yeah. and this is somebody can, who's highly can, educated sure. and may have a great uh, deal of experience and like you said maybe they've settled in a rural part of texas where a nurse is in incredible demand right now and they know nursing they're a good mm. nurse but they can't do that yeah. so they ended up end up doing some you know uh, some other job that just anything that'll pay well, and them. it's a necessary job right they filled a job that was open sure. um i think there was a story a couple of months ago here where a woman went to pick up her kid at elementary school and went into labor at the school and a, and a teacher at the school had been an OBGYN in venezuela and she delivered the baby wow so we know you know and it's important i mean teachers are valuable and sure. like having someone with that kind of skill is great in our schools but she could be delivering baby babies yeah. right like that's what she could be doing you've hit on this a little bit in the conversation but but let's talk about the policy recommendations that, that you have for our leaders in yeah. Austin and in DC. They're listening. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, our policy recommendations are pretty straightforward. We want to fix the system. And, you know, every, every two years we put these together and some years we, we focus a little bit more on, um, you know, if you looked at my 2021 ones, you've seen, uh, obviously we focus a little more on the border and sort of fixing the big picture. And this time around we said, okay, what's achievable in the next couple of years hmm. and really take, you know, I, I got, um, in looking at this issue, so often we point fingers. Congress goes, well, that's administration's job. They're not fixing it. You know, Congress really is the only one who can fix the immigration issues right now. It's their power, too. It's Why would you power. give away your power? To, you know? Well, you know, sometimes you want to punt difficult yeah. topics. Right? I'll let that be your problem <laughs> over there. Yeah. So, you know, we really want Congress to take this on. Um, and it's not just about the border. It's about, you know, we've got this whole population of Afghan evacuees who don't really have a real status. Um, parole is not a permanent status. And um, in any other world, they would have had their special immigrant visa because we would have processed it in a timely manner, which the United States government did not do. Um, we could have had them through a refugee pipeline, which is also backlogged and delayed. Um, they don't have a status. Congress could act on something like that, um, pr provide some permanence for them. Congress has a role to play at the border that is not just about pointing fingers and not just about taking trips to go look at it. They really could appropriate funds to make sure DHS is fully staffed, not just for the law enforcement, but for the humanitarian piece of this. They could take on some of the necessary changes to asylum because you really can only change the law um, on asylum via Congress, not via the executive. And you want those changes to be good and lasting. And they could really take on that legal immigration piece. They could figure out what are the good pathways. Where do we need workers? How do we facilitate this? And then, you know, broadly speaking, we really do still need to think about this as a refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere. What are the regional solutions? How is our government working with other governments? How are we engaging to make sure people have a place to settle? You, you said that those might be achievable things right now. Are they really, though? Po I mean, politically, it, you right have now, to be an optimist about this, right? Otherwise, yeah. you really can't do this work, right? People say no a lot. I mean, there was a there was a provision um, at the end of last year that would have done a pilot program for just it was like ten visas or ten green cards for um, workers who would have. Um, fit the qualifications we needed to fill a specific form of right. tech job under the CHIPS Act. And it was a pilot program. It was just 10 visas and it got stripped out of one of the bills at the end. And so, you know, does that, that drive you crazy? Does that, does yeah, I mean, it drives all of us crazy, right? But it's not just my topic that's yeah. like this. Um, and so we have to be optimistic about it. There are achievable things. There are things that Congress can do and there's people who want to work on them. And then that was my next question. How often are, are you talking to people in DC or how often are they calling you 
uh, and back and forth. You don't have to name names unless you want to. No, I would say, you know, we are a 501c3, right? So we don't, we don't lobby. I want, I want your listeners to know, you know, I'm not on the phone every day, like, you know, mm-hmm. trying to like count votes or, or whip anybody. But you're, right? an, you're an expert on the issue but and we, you study it. We make sure and, and we have conversations with policymakers. Um, some of them are in the legislature and some of them are in the executive branch occasionally and just say, you know, like, how can we be helpful to you? This is what we've seen. This is what we think are good suggestions. How can we be helpful? And so we're there to educate. Um, and we really do that as often as they will allow us. And, you know, they're not our only audience. So obviously you guys have me on today. I'm yeah. talking to people who aren't on the Hill. Um, and so, you know, to the we're, extent we're in the that, Valley, to the extent that we can be, down. we can be, a, you know, a voice for folks to learn more about an issue. That's really where our sweet spot is. You can always tell when you're talking to somebody though, if they are soaking up your message or if they're really not listening to what you have to say and, and don't agree with the things that you're saying, do you get the sense that they're, you know, that you're getting some bipartisan real interest in the things that you're saying? Are are you sensing that from Republicans and Democrats? You know, when we talk to staff, I actually am always very impressed with the staffers because they do care deeply. I mean, and and I'll say I did, you know, I'm a little biased. I lived in DC for a while. And so maybe this is just my own rose colored glasses. I think so often people get this image of DC as being out of touch and just people don't care and it's all their own priorities. And what I found is that almost everybody that I've encountered in DC cares very deeply about the future of this country. They care very deeply about the topics they work on. And so people are always willing to listen and have good conversations. It doesn't mean that the you know votes are going to swing the way that you would want to see them or I would want to see them, but people are very thoughtful there and they are working very hard. And these are people who care deeply about the future of this country. Just because of the center where we are right now, I do have to ask you in the 10 years that you've been really diving deep into this topic, you know, we've heard people say that the, today's Republican Party is not your father's Republican Party. You could also say that it's not your former president, <laughs> George W. Bush's Republican Party anymore. It's changed a lot. Has that changed the way that you have to approach this uh, to try to get people on board? The political center on immigration, I think, has always been about the same, whether you're talking about the center left or the center right. I mean, some of the terminologies change. The reality of what the solutions needed are changes a little bit. But I think if you were, you know, I referenced the the fight between the 1920s and 1965, the arguments for and against immigration were the exact same then than they are today. Um, the focus was a little less on the border, obviously. Um, but, you know, those are those are questions of identity and economics and in our future and they were the same then as as they are now and so the faces change the party who likes it or dislikes it changes and some of those are just more parochial concerns Um, but generally speaking the center on this hasn't really moved much Hmm. it's just that there might be fewer people in the center from both parties which isn't helpful it's not but you know i mean that's just the nature of 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 the beast i mean politics moves according to public sentiment and so if you're not speaking up and letting uh, letting your representative or your senator know how you feel about any issue you know they do listen uh, they don't always vote the way you want. And so voting's important and, you know, making sure that they they hear you because they are your voice in our government and they can only do the work that you want them to do if they hear from you. And, you know, the other thing I like to remind people is political leadership on these topics matters and it doesn't have to come from the top. Every single one of us is a leader in our own right, in our own communities, whether it's your faith community, whether it's your neighborhood, whether it's just your family. And so making sure that you are talking about issues that are sensitive like this responsibly, using facts, figuring out what is a good solution and not just the um, the really hot take of the day mm. really drives good conversations forward and helps us find good solutions. Based on what happened in the 1920s to the 1960s, that 40-year that span, how, how much longer do you think it's going to be before we actually tackle real immigration reform here and, and enact some of these recommendations that you have. I don't know, but you know, the thing that's been interesting in looking back at that time and also looking sort of at what people are proposing for asylum right now, I'm, I'm, this is where I get probably a little negative is that, you know, one of the reasons that we did not do as the United States a very good job of bringing in um, refugees from the Holocaust, Jews who were fleeing Nazi Germany, Um, was because these laws had such tight restrictions on Eastern Europeans entering the United States. And so we turned away a lot of refugees who otherwise would have been able to seek protection here. And so our asylum system and our refugee system was designed with that in mind, knowing that we didn't adequately protect people who needed our protection. And a lot of what we've seen for 
proposed reforms on asylum would deny people the ability. And, and currently, the Biden administration is doing a little bit of this. You know, they're trying to discourage people from crossing between ports of entry by making it, you know, it's a presumption that you you don't qualify for asylum if you cross between a port of entry or you have to try to apply in another country. And that's not how asylum was designed. Um, obviously, no one right now, to my knowledge, is fleeing genocide in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but that could change. And so we want to make sure those laws are set up so that we have that flexibility to protect folks if possible. Because, you know, we're the United States of America. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seen as that beacon of freedom and opportunity around the world. And so our leadership on this topic in particular is really, really important. And so I'm a little bit wary looking ahead to, like, what those asylum restrictions are going to look like and what the legislation proposed looks like. Because I have concerns that we have forgotten that we have these laws in place and designed that way for a reason. Does it drive you crazy that immigration is talked about just as immigration, as migrants? We we don't hear a lot of breakout a lot of times for asylum seekers versus people trying to migrate here for other reasons. Oh, well, I think the most frustrating thing is that people think the border is immigration and immigration is richer than that and the border is richer than that. You know, immigration doesn't define those border communities any more than it defines Dallas, right? Um, there's so much more to those communities than just immigration and to to act as if they're war zones, mm. I think is really sad. Um, you know, we hear all, all, over and over, you know, how safe those cities along the border are. And they're filled with full of good people who are just, you know, trying to go about their daily lives. I have to ask you before we let you go, dreamers, does that get done? We've heard about that for years and years. These are people who were brought here as children from other countries. They grew up here. This is the only country they know. They're in a lot of professional roles here in this country, paying taxes, et cetera. Well, and a lot of them are my age, right? They're in their late 30s. They're raising American citizen children. And, um, you know, they've been educated here. And they very much view themselves as Americans. They just don't have American passports. It's the courts who are, you know, keeping them here. You raise a good point, though. It's not just on dreamers where this is the problem right now. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of hope that anything happens in legislatively because Congress has is content to let that play out in the courts. But what we've seen on almost every other immigration topic is that Congress is in action, the executive branch's limits on what they can do. Uh, folks are just content to let this be played out in, in the judicial branch. And so that's why you see over and over, if the executive branch acts, someone files a lawsuit against it, um, particularly in um, the states are filing lawsuits to stop things. And, and so that's where a lot of immigration policy is playing out right now. It's a bad idea to let it play out in the courts. You want Congress to make these laws. You want it to be done uh, through the legislative branch. Uh, that's the best way that this can happen. Um, and it prov- it provides probably the most consistency when you have it just be the battle of court orders. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, whiplash. It politicizes the judicial system, too, when you always make the people in robes be the one who decide everything that, you know, let's say it's something that's a polarizing issue. Instead of legislating, you're forcing the people in the robes to take the positions. And yeah, I mean, kicking the can on the road and just continuing to punt to the to the people in robes is, is, I think, a bad idea on a lot of topics. Unfortunately, on immigration, what it does is it has you know, immediate real world policy changes that then the government has to try to implement. And it's just this constant back and forth. And if you talk to immigration lawyers, particularly those who work on these humanitarian cases at the border, they're very busy and their clients don't really know what to expect. And if you're an employer and you employ these people, you also don't know what to expect. Are they going to have work authorization tomorrow? Am I going to have to lay off a valuable employee because I'm not legally allowed to employ them anymore? Mm -hmm. Uh, These are not, it's not the good way to make immigration policy. Mm Laura, last question. If you could wait, you've talked about a lot of different ideas, recommendations here for, for changing policy. If you could wave a wand right now and change three things, what would they be? Ooh, three things. Gosh, just you, three? You said raising, <laughs> increasing the number of green cards. I'll give you that one as number one. Yeah. What, what else would you do? Wow, so you're now would, only giving her two. So two. You can, okay. t- you can take three. Yeah, I would definitely um, increase the number of green cards and just general legal pathways available. Some of those are going to be temporary visas. I would um, streamline our refugee process right now. We're horrifically backlogged. We've been behind um, behind for several years now, and those are people who are just languishing in third countries. Some of them are Afghans who, uh, you know, they're women who worked for the United States but who don't qualify for special immigrant visas, and they're just hanging out in countries with bad political turmoil like Pakistan, waiting for someone to pick up their paperwork and process it so they can get their families to safety. Um, and then I would... Ooh. You have all the power here, Laura. I have all the Choose power. Choose carefully. I would probably 
tackle the undocumented issue um, because these are folks who are here. They're, I think it's something like 6% of our workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, I, several years ago, ran these numbers and it was like, I think it would be $1 trillion of our economy lost if we were to round up and deport all of them. They're here, they've been working, they've been paying taxes. There are reasonable solutions that involve earning their position here as residents, um, that's one that we need to solve because it's unfortunate that people don't have the ability to fully participate. Um, you know, mm. we, I think so often people think of citizenship as, as full rights, it's also full responsibilities. And so these people are already in our communities, let's find a way for dreamers and their parents to get those full rights and responsibilities of residency. A lot of people living in the that's shadows. Are, are you ready for the next 10 years to stay in this? It, people are always like, oh my gosh, how do you work on this? And I love it. I think it's a great issue. I don't mind that it's controversial or volatile or political. It's, you know, I just think it's way too important and I like the complexity and, you know, I couldn't be working on a better issue. And I'm just really, really lucky that I get to do the work that I do here. Um, you know, I, I hope that it comes through that we really start from a place of values. You know, what do we value? We think America benefits from immigration. We think it's important. And so that's, that's everything that we do flows from that. And doesn't it help get your message out that you, you can say I'm, I'm at the Bush center? You know, I hope so. <laughs> um, it never, it doesn't hurt. Obviously. I would imagine it makes a few more phones get picked up and a few more emails get responded to. We are very privileged that, you know, um, even if people don't know the work specifically that I do, they know the name. But you know what, Lori, you take the volatility out of it in this conversation. I mean, talking about reasonable solutions, that's what I hope our listeners and our viewers got from this is because when you remove the politics, you can talk about real people's lives here. Well, and it is real people's lives. These exactly. are These are people. These are human beings who, who want the same thing that everyone does at the end of the day to go home somewhere safe. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's what's lost in so much of this. When Jason was talking about a moment ago, who are these people? Are they, you know, illegal immigrants? How they, you know, it's, it's seldom, it seems like that, you know, you go below the surface on that to see who's an asylum seeker, who's a refugee, who, who's a thug that shouldn't be here. There are very different people there, and the majority of them are just good people who've been coming here like everyone has for 200 years. Yeah, I'm, I, I will misquote him, but I think President Bush said that family values don't stop at the Rio Grande, mm. right? Um, and I would say that looking at today and the displacement around the world, it's not just that family values don't um, stop at the Rio Grande. They don't stop at any border. And, you know, what America does and how America views immigration, how it views its obligation to humanitarian migrants spills over. You know, we see that other countries turn water cannons on people in the English Channel. We see that they reject um, reject resettlement of other vulnerable people. It, what we do matters a lot, and we need to take that responsibility very seriously. I've misquoted President Bush uh, a few times. Strategy being the first. <laughs> I would say, uh, you know, that just, was a good quote you had there, Lauren. Just with former President Bush's uh, track record, I would say he is, of all of the former presidents, the least likely to get upset <laughs> for someone misquoting him just a little bit. <laughs> Laura, thank you so much. That was, it was fascinating to, to really go below the surface on this because mm-hmm. we, you don't get that very often in what you read and what you consume and what you hear and what you see. Oh, well, thank you. I'll come back anytime. Yeah. I love doing this. So. How, how was the beer, by the way? Oh, well, um, you didn't open I it. I didn't open it. Shall I open now and Please. take a quick taste? Take it, take it home. It is after. It's... Open it and we, chug it. We, we had you talking so much, so <laughs> I, I understand. I was hoping to give you a break with one of Wheeler's Long Questions here. But you know, I, I usually that allows me. people to drink a lot. <laughs> that is quite good. So is it good? For, yeah, I think it's good. Sorry it that go, it's... I mean, and, and like, you know, it's a Mexican-style lager, so... It was appropriate. It, it fits. Was, yes. yeah. Sorry that it's lukewarm at this point. Oh, that's okay, you know. Uh, maybe I'll get some Mexican food for lunch, and then <laughs> oh. it'll go perfectly. Laura Collins, thank you so much. Uh, director of the Bush Institute SMU uh, Economic Growth Initiative here at the George W. Bush Institute. It's a, right? That's a mouthful. It's a lot. And, you can and, say center, though, too. Uh, yeah, I'm going to say center. But yes, um, it, it was fascinating. Thanks for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, y'all. The conversation doesn't stop here. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Yolitics.